Our scripture reading, which will be preached here briefly, is in Mark chapter 14. Pastor Hensworth will be focusing on verses 22 to 31, but let's look at some of the larger context. Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is... It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man had he not been born. While they were eating, he took some of the bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee." But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will den not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. They came to a place called, named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they all left him and fled. Good morning, church. It's such a pleasure to be back here under little different circumstances. Thank God for his healing power and thank you for your prayers. This morning I'm pleased to bring you a sermon from Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 31. And I've entitled the message, Never Abandoned. Never Abandoned. Please stand with me just briefly as I read again a few of the verses that we read earlier. I'm using the old King James Version. (laughs) Verse 22, and as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, This day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, you shall deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. (laughs) Likewise also said they all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
Grant us the grace for sustainable intimacy with you. We desire that you become our supreme priority. We don't want our pursuit of you to be opportunistic. We seek you, Lord, for you alone, not just for what we can get out of you. Father, we thank you for adopting us into your family. May we approach you boldly, even when we feel like running away. And grant us the grace in this moment to sincerely ponder your word and be committed to apply it to our lives. We pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Never abandoned. Never abandoned. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever experienced a relationship, whether a serious one or a passing acquaintance, in which you were convinced you were walking on thin ice? <laughs> If you cannot recall experiencing it, <laughs> you may have seen it in another person's life. This is a situation where you know that things could just fall apart at any moment. For there are no shared values, no shared affection, interests, or goals. It was apparent from the get-go that this relationship had no future. <laughs> you could tell. You knew you were about to be abandoned or someone was. You see, without the assurance of stability and endurance, a relationship cannot have peace and fulfillment. We all need to know just where we stand in a relationship. We need to answer the question, how committed are you to me? We all need an answer to that question. Relationships require considerable investment we need to know whether or not we're wasting our time. A proper assessment has to be made. This is also true in our relationship with God. Without some semblance of assurance concerning God's dealings with you, there will be no peace in your life. Anxiety will take over. Our Lord Jesus gives great assurance to those who are indeed his, those who are true believers. In this holy passage of scripture, we can see two solemn statements from our Lord, two of them. You must know that when our Lord Jesus said something of utmost importance, something that is exceptionally crucial, something that he stakes everything upon, he usually has a marker before the statement. Essentially, such a marker communicated what we say at the end of our prayers. What do we say at the end of our prayers? Amen. <laughs> In the King James Version, which is the 1611 translation that is still ubiquitous <laughs> um, and 
probably the most read version, even though it has um, some things that would make us run away. The language is still very beautiful. Every time you see him saying, verily, verily, I say unto you, that's just another way of saying amen, before he says what he's about to say. We normally put the amen at the end. But he, he starts with that. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. Mm. It is a way of pointing to the seriousness of the issue that he's about to address. There are two such solemn amen statements here in this text that we just read. If you want to know Christ personally and have the changes in your life that can come from knowing him, you have to be sure about these matters and understand these two statements. I have given them in two headings for you to get a handle on them. All right, number one, an inexplicable pledge. An inexplicable pledge. And number two, an infinite patience. An infinite patience. <laughs> Let's examine them in that order. Number one, an inexplicable pledge. Look at verse 25. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. An inexplicable pledge. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the first amen statement in this text, verily or truly, here our Lord is telling us, he's essentially saying, I am radically and utterly committed to those who trust in me. I am radically and utterly committed to you. It's an inexplicable pledge. <laughs> He's saying, I will never abandon you. And I pledge that I will make sure that you get with me to glory. Let's work it out. When our Lord said, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine, he had just been eating and drinking. He said, I'm not going to do this until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. This is the kind of language one, use, one uses when making a vow. This is vow language. If you go back to Acts chapter 23, there's a fascinating story. In Acts 23, verse 12, a group of men gathered and decided that the apostle Paul had to go. We have, we have to kill this man. They were committed to killing him. They made a vow, and the vow was not to eat or drink until they have killed him. <laughs> when anyone says... I take a vow not to eat or drink until I achieve my goal. That puts the highest possible priority on that goal. Another way of saying this is, I won't even eat before I have done this. There is nothing more important. I won't even stop to eat. The language means this is utterly the highest priority of my life. 
our Lord Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He was talking about the messianic banquet. He was talking about the messianic feast at the end of time. He was talking about that final day, the last day. Essentially, he was saying, I am utterly committed, radically committed to you. I will never abandon you. There is no higher priority in my life than to get you home with me to the Father. Hallelujah. Now, that is an amazing statement. But that is not all. We're not only told of the size of our Lord's commitment, that is the magnitude of it. We are also told of its shape. In other words, we are not only told how much our Lord was committed to getting his people to glory, but we are also told here just what he is ready to do to get it done. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Period. Some of you didn't get that. I said period. If you did not get that, please focus on verse 26. Maybe that will help you. In verse 26, there is some powerful doctrine. Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now normally, you read this narrative and you just read right past that. But you can't do that this morning. That was the end of the meal. I can imagine the apostles, the disciples there, were probably shocked, shocked that that was the end of the meal. What do you mean sing a hymn and let's go? What am I talking about? This was a Passover meal. How could that be the end of it? What do you mean sing a hymn and let's go? Let me explain to you. The Passover meal was the annual commemoration of the great deliverance by God of the children of Israel, bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. God, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14, had said through Moses, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Every family was to observe this meal. There were Always three elements to the meal. Three elements to the meal. First, there was the bread. The bread was unleavened bread. The reason it was always unleavened bread was to remind them of the fact that their forefathers had to rush out at the very last minute from Egypt. It talks about the haste and the riskiness of the time. It was unleavened bread because nobody could wait around for the bread to rise. So, the first element of the Passover meal was that you passed around the bread. Usually, the head of the household would say to the family, 
at the Passover meal, this is the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. So that's the first element, bread. Unleavened bread. The second element was the wine. The cup went around four times to represent God's four promises to the children of Israel before he took them out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 6 records those four great promises. In summary, um, uh, God essentially said to them, I will bring you out. I will rid you of your bondage. I will pay your redemption price, and I will take you away to be my people. So every time the cup, the wine, went around, it commemorated uh, those four promises. So we have two elements so far. One is the, the bread, and the second is the, the wine. The third element of, in the Passover meal was the lamb. Why? What was behind the necessity of this lamb? On the night before Passover, God had warned the children of Israel that he would free them from Egypt by sending an angel of judgment, an angel of death, down into Egypt, and that the sword of judgment would fall on people in Egypt. Please note that God did not specify that the angel of death would smite the Egyptians. And spare the children of Israel. Please, don't read that into that. <laughs> the mission of the angel of death was not to promote ethnic or national supremacy. Please pay attention. He, didn't, he wasn't going to Egypt, that angel of death, to kill Egyptians. Mm. What did God say? God said, in effect, to the Israelites... I want every family among you to kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of your houses to show that you have sacrificed the lamb. Why? Do you know, do you know what it means? God was making it abundantly clear that his sword of judgment would fall on all who deserve judgment. Of course, it should be clear that everyone deserves judgment, both Israelites and Egyptians, for all were sinners. So, so what's the point? What's the point? The point is that the angel of death, the sword of judgment, was to come down on everyone unless provision was made. Mm. <laughs> you see, the God of the Bible is no respecter of persons. He is not vindictive. He is not capricious. Everyone in Egypt, whether they were Israelite or Egyptian, was to be subject to judgment unless some provision was made for their sins. The provision was the blood of the Lamb. So, so, so the word was declared that a lamb was to be killed and the blood was to be put on the doorpost of the house, when the angel of death, the sword of judgment, saw the blood, <laughs> he would pass over that house, regardless of the ethnicity or nas nationality of the occupants. All inside would be spared because he saw the blood. 
Hmm. No one was to assume that their ethnic group, religious affiliation, race, or personal record would save them. The angel of death was interested in only one thing, the blood. Now that is why every year in Passover, you had to have the bread, the wine, and the lamb. Now, let's get back to our text. Our Lord Jesus was observing the Passover with his disciples. He spoke the words of institution of the Lord's Supper that we have become familiar with. In summary, he told them that the bread represented his body and the wine, his blood, the blood of the covenant. Then suddenly, it was over. Let's sing a hymn and and, and let's go. Suddenly it was over. He spoke about the wine, the, the bread and the wine, and then it was over. We today have no problem with such an ending. <laughs> but the disciples would have been shocked. They would have been shocked. Why? Why? First of all, Jesus changed the Passover. He didn't. He did not pass the bread saying, this is the bread of the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. No, 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 no. He passed it around and he said, in effect, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body. <laughs> the same thing happened when he passed around the cup. He did not say, this is the cup of God's redemption from the hand of Pharaoh. No, 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 he didn't say that. He said, this is the cup of my redemption. <laughs> this is my blood. The Lord Jesus just up and changed everything. I don't know if you realize why this is so staggering. I earlier referred to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. Let me go back there, and you better pay attention to that verse. <laughs> what did he say? And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. And ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. How long? Okay. God had told the children of Israel in Egypt that they were never to change the Passover celebrations from what he had prescribed. They were never to change this. But in our text, Jesus changed it. How could, how could he just up and change it? Someone knows. Was Jesus overruling the Father? Let me ask you this. Who has the right to change a commander-in-chief's order? If you're in an army and down comes an order from the commander-in-chief, who has the right to change that order? Who has the right to say, ah, oh, no, no, we're not doing that. We're doing something else. The answer is simple. Only the commander-in-chief can change the order of the commander-in-chief. 
for our Lord Jesus to change what was said at the institution of the Passover means that he was claiming to be the one who gave the original order. Now hear this. Our Lord not only changed the words of the institution of the Passover, he also changed what was served. Changed the menu. Let's, let's come back later to the change in the meaning of the ordinance. Concerning the elements, everything was normal when he served bread and when he served wine. But then something was conspicuously absent. How can you sing a hymn? There's a piece of the menu that we haven't tasted yet. <laughs> mm. Why would he abruptly announce the hymn and close the service? What about the lamb? The menu was changed. Well, you listen to me. <laughs> there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. Or somebody ought to give Jesus some praise just for that. Come on, give the Lord a hand of praise just for that. No lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. That was cataclysmic. Our Lord was saying, in effect, I am the lamb. Don't you understand? This night is different. It's special. It's set apart from every other night. As great as the deliverance from Egypt was, I am giving you deliverance from sin, from death, and from hell itself. As important as it was to get out from under the economic and social bondage of Egypt, how much more important would it be to get out from under the bondage of evil and death? Those lambs slaughtered in Egypt were necessary so that you could realize that sinners will only be saved and accepted by grace through the shedding of blood, my blood. What is the point? Our Lord Jesus said, in effect, I will tell you the truth. He began with an amen. Verily, truly. I am so radically committed to you that I'm prepared to back it up with everything I have. You know, when most people say, I will not eat or drink until I accomplish my goal, or that this will happen over my dead body, what they're really saying is, I will die or accomplish my goal. I will die or accomplish my goal. However, our Lord's message is different. He was saying, in effect, tonight, I will die to accomplish my goal. Mm, mm. He was not saying, I will die or accomplish my goal. He was saying, in effect, tonight, I will die for you to accomplish my goal. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I will pay for your sins. Take shelter. Take shelter under my blood and there will be no condemnation for you at all. When our Lord Jesus changed the words of the institution of the Passover, he claimed to be God himself. Also, when he changed what was served, he was saying, I'm God, but... I have not come to demand a sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. Hmm. 
I have not come to demand payment for sin. I came to make the payment. <laughs> Therefore, the God of the Bible says, I love you enough to die for you. Please listen to me. If you don't have a God who says there must be payment for sin, then you have a God who is not interested in justice and, and hasn't spent anything to love you. When our Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I will let nothing stop me from getting you home to my father, he was willing to die. Oh, what love! Oh, what love! It is because of this love that I can sing pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. <laughs> Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. I'm blessed. Will somebody say I'm blessed? I'm blessed. If you are saved today, you're blessed. I am blessed for my Savior's incarnation emptied himself to fill me up. I am blessed by my Savior's crucifixion satisfying the Lord's demands once for all. I am blessed by my Savior's resurrection confirming the efficacy of the atonement. I am blessed by my Savior's intercession pleading my case before the throne in glory. I am blessed by my Savior's promise to come again for the consummation of my joy. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. I'm blessed. I said two things. What's the first one? Hmm? An inexplicable pledge. Secondly, an infinite patience. Please follow this. He's saying, I will never abandon you, and I've made an inexplicable pledge. And he's also saying, I'll never abandon you because I have infinite patience. <laughs> Go down to verse 30, and you'll see what I'm saying. Verse 30, Jesus said unto him, Verily, yes, again, truly, or amen, I say to you, to thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the second amen statement, verily I say unto thee, the second amen statement of our Lord in this text makes it abundantly clear that even though our Lord knows that we will disown him and betray him, his patience is infinite concerning those who are truly his. I need you to grab that. If you look back in, at your Christian life, I'm not talking about your pre-Christian days. Even at your Christian life, you have to hang your head in shame at the times you have betrayed him, denied him, ignored him, failed him. Oh, don't put up your hands. You know the truth. And he knows it more. 
But once his, his heart is set on you, once he has included you, he has infinite patience to get you home to glory. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. He will never give up on us. If you have truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will never give up on you. Oh, that is amazing. Instead, he's prepared to do whatever it takes, whether by chastisement or encouragement, to get us to glory. He is prepared to do whatever it takes, whether by chastisement or encouragement, to get you to glory. He's patient. Listen, folks. Knowing that he will never let you down is essential if you want a relationship with Christ that changes your life. However, it is just as crucial for you to know that you will let him down. And he knows it. But he's still committed to you. Man, that almost sounds too good to be true. But I've come here today to tell you it's true. Concerning true believers, it's infinite patience. Look at verse 27. Look at it. Our Lord said to his disciples, All ye shall offend shall be offended because of me this night. You know, sometimes we, we like to focus on Peter as denying him, but the text has made it clear that all of them said the same thing as Peter. Okay? All ye shall deny him. He was telling them that every one of them will be traitors in some measure. Then look at verse 28. But after that I am risen, I will go before you in Galilee. What our Lord was saying was, look, you will all betray me, but I'm on my way to Galilee and we'll hook up on the way. I still love you. I will, <laughs> I will still meet you in Galilee. I have a job to do. I will rise from the dead, and we're going to go to Galilee. And I'm going to let the fact, I am not going to let the fact that you're going to disown me, the fact that you're going to betray me, the fact that you're going to let me down come between you and me. I'm not going to let that come between me and my goal for us to someday sit down together at the Messianic banquet. I want you to know that in my scheme of salvation, I have factored in that you will let me down. Oh, what love. Oh, what love. Doesn't it melt your heart when those who should be angry at you and ready to throw you away are saying, I'm committed. I'm still committed to you. Listen, folks, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that your commitment to Christ does not save you. Oh, I need you to hear me. It's not your commitment to Christ to save you. You are saved because of his commitment to you. You only love him. 
because he first loved you. So, what does a sinner need to do to be saved and preserved in Christ? What does a sinner need to do? The answer is nothing. All you need is your need. Oh, you didn't even hear me. I said all you need is what? Your need. <laughs> you just have to come to the end of yourself because in your sin, you're full of yourself. Abase yourself. All you need is nothing. But hear this. Most people don't have it. Oh, I know you're going to get it when you get home. I said, all you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. Most people have something. <laughs> something to boast about. Some idol that they think will give them a powerful identity. Some invented God that they believe will, will give them some significance. Some temporal object of worship that they imagine will give them some semblance of security. Most people have something, but what he wants you to have is... You have to sing what we have sung before. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. To thy fountain, Lord, I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. All you need to say is, Lord... I don't believe enough. <laughs> no, I, I will disown you. I will let you down. I won't be able to keep this up on my own. You have to help me, Jesus. Only then will the Lord say, now I will do what you cannot do. I will do it. Listen, folks, this is the only basis for me to sing and rejoice. I can now rejoice with the hymn writer in, who said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. <laughs> my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Beloved, I'm free. Are you free? free I can testify I hope that you don't mind me testifying a little I'm praying that the Lord Jesus will make you free too I'm free indeed for the son has made me free and because the shackles are gone I've got love in my heart for the stony heart has been replaced with a heart of flesh. Because the shackles are gone, I've got joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because the shackles are gone, I've got 
peace like a river. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Because the shackles are gone, I've got a down payment, a guarantee, an earnest of the Holy Ghost. Listen, folks, because the shackles are gone, I've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Because the shackles are gone, I can only praise the Son who has made me free indeed. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Let me wrap this up. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, if you believe these two things, the inexplicable pledge of Christ, his radical commitment to you, and the infinite patience of Christ, he's embracing you even when you have disowned him. If you embrace these two things, you can be a faithful disciple of Christ. You can genuinely and unashamedly live a Christian life. Where does that leave us? Listen, if you embrace these two crucial principles in Christ's work on your behalf, everything will change. Everything. Not only will the gospel impact your relationship with God forever, but it will also trickle down into every nook and cranny of your life. You will begin to do for others what, well, in a lesser way, of course, you will begin to do for others what our Lord has done for you, and they will never understand it. <laughs> you just blow them away. They will be baffled and stunned at the level of your commitment to your relationships and your willingness to love people who have disowned you. By your trying to mimic Christ, they are blown away. What? What? You're committed? That committed? To me? After what I've done to you? I've disowned you and you still want me? They'll be amazed at the grace of God to you and through you. You know, these amen statements are powerful indeed. Amen responses are critical in the worship of God, both in the past and in the present. In Judaism, amen was something that you said when you were listening to someone teach in the synagogue. The elders would sit up front, they would listen. They would weigh what was said. If it made sense to them and it sounded like the truth of God's word, at the end of the teaching, the elders will say, Amen. Now, what did they mean by that? They said, in effect, we have weighed what you have said, and it is true. It is indeed consistent with the oracles of God. Now, as I said before, <laughs> What was unusual about our Lord Jesus' teaching style was that he did not allow the Amen to follow his teaching. He placed the Amen at the beginning of his statement. <laughs> Some scholars have explained that our Lord's use of the Amen to introduce and endorse his own words is without analogy in all Jewish literature 
and even in the remainder of the New Testament. You don't see that anywhere else. This is another demonstration of his unique authority. He was announcing categorically that no one could impeach the veracity of his teaching. Whatever he said was an unimpeachable absolute. <laughs> he was his own authority. He was very God. <laughs> how, how can you come to grips with somebody who has given himself utterly to you without your giving yourself utterly to him? That is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Again, I ask, how can you come to grips with somebody who has given himself utterly for you without your giving yourself utterly to him? To not do so, is as foolish as it is immoral. It is not reasonable. Our Lord Jesus Christ managed to turn things upside down. He came not in strength, but in weakness. He came not to gain power, but to give away power. We have been called to do the same thing, to make that inexplicable pledge of loving people with unswerving commitment and to have that infinite patience of loving people who are going to let us down. People who in the long run demonstrate no prospects of being of any benefit to us. It should be clear that biblical Christianity is not a silly, casual, relational game. <laughs> it is not promiscuous dabbling or sampling of religion to taste it without swallowing. It is not the charismatic quest for temporal power analogous to the animistic uh, manipulations of spirits to control affairs in everyone's life. No, 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 no. None of that nonsense. It is not the oversimplification of ritualistic religion that imagines that eternal issues can be answered in the pageantry of a priestly ceremony you know, and all the whatever. It is not the naive or legalistic religion that imagines that men and women corrupted by both original sin and continued transgressions can manifest in themselves perfect obedience to God's moral law, you know, the Ten Commandments, and pay off in this life the infinite debt of eternal perdition. Oh, go ahead and try, knock yourself out. It should be clear that biblical Christianity is far more serious than all of the above. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not about a human solution to the plight of humanity. It is about a divine rescue mission. It is an act of clemency, a judicial pardon decreed by the judge of all the earth. From among the guilty and condemned sinners, all worthy of an eternal or eternity in hell. God the Father was pleased to elect before the foundation of the world some sinners unto salvation based on nothing meritorious in them, but only on the matchless love in himself because of his absolute commitment to justice. He could not release them 
of their guilt and liability without appropriate payment. So God the Son became incarnate to cancel by his atoning death on the cross of Calvary, the infinite death of the same sinners through the sacrificial shedding of his infinite blood. Then, in the fullness of time, God the Holy Spirit applied the power of the atonement to the same individual sinners by quickening or awakening them concerning their sinful state and enabling them by regeneration to embrace through repentance and saving faith the work of Christ, the incarnate Son, on their behalf to the salvation of their souls. This divine arrangement is the basis of all true worship. It is secured not by human power, not by human will, but by the omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent purposes of the true and living God. This is why Christ's work is an inexplicable pledge of commitment to you who believe, and also an infinite patience towards the same, despite their inevitable infidelity. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. What is the appropriate response to this love? Can it be ignored? Can it be rejected? Can it be minimized? Can it be viewed with indifference? Only to one's peril by God's grace and for his glory. I can only surrender all. I can only bow my knee. I can only praise and exalt his holy name. I can only plead for pardon. I can only receive it with gladness. I can only rest in him. I can only bask in freedom. I can only repent and believe. This God of grace has assured me that I will never be abandoned. Never, never, never be abandoned. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Amen. Will you bow with me? Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised goodness to your servants. You have left us nothing to ask from your hands but what you have already freely granted. Lord, establish forever the word which you have spoken concerning your servants. Do as you have said, and let your name be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of armies, he is the God of Israel. I pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.